This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. We did not hear from my mother for a week. Mm. You know, we were certain she was dead. Wow. So we were like kind of planning a funeral, just waiting to hear back. Mm. And I'll never forget this moment. I was in duress, couldn't sleep, was up late at night. It was like 4 a.m. We can't get in contact with any family, with anyone, and my father gets a call. And I hear my father wail. Mm. My father, the toughest man that I've ever met, just weeping. And he comes into my room and he's like, your mother, your mother. And I'm certain, I'm like, this means she's dead. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks again for joining me on Where You're From. Today, we get to meet Carvins Lassan. Carvins is an award-winning Haitian-American poet and actor who recently completed his run as George Washington in the Tony Award-winning musical and global phenomenon, Hamilton. You can find out more about Carvins and his work in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. But before he starred in Hamilton, he experienced poverty, generational trauma, and a deep spiritual longing. Please join me as I ask Carvins Lassant, where you're from. Is that a question or is that rhetorical? Oh, no, it's not rhetorical. That's like the whole thing. Like the show is, is where you're from. <laughs> so like that's what we do here. <laughs> I am from Harlem, New York. I was born in Queens, uh, raised in Harlem, lived in Brooklyn for eight years. My parents are immigrants from Haiti, so I'm first-generation American, so identify as a Haitian-American. For those who are not familiar with Haiti, paint us a picture. Yeah, you know, it is a dynamically beautiful and sometimes very tragic country. It is riddled by poverty, and the origins of their poverty comes from this really dynamically amazing a beautiful thing about Haiti being the first Black free nation to fight for their own freedom during slavery. And they were hit with an amazing debt to France in order to keep their freedom. And the country has struggled ever since because of it. And so, you know, when you think about the Haitian people, when you think about the country, you think about resilience, you think about <laughs> incredible food, you think about people who had an incredible faith and incredible fight within them to attain freedom. Mm. But then they are hit with government corruption and they're hit with greed and they're stripped of their resources and stripped of their finances. And then you have this what we would call now sort of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere because of people's greed and people's violence against it. And so my family comes from that. You know, my mm. father grew up in the countryside of Haiti. My mom grew up in Port-au-Prince, which is the capital. And, you know, they, especially my father, was just raised in utter poverty, like literally had nothing, walked barefoot to school. He sold things on the street, like jewelry and stuff with his mom. 
yeah, they fought to try to get to what we would say is the American dream, try to get mm. to this country, and then had to face all types of things when they got here or while they're here. Before you make that transition, I've become such a admirer of Haitian history. Not just did they fight for independence, but they fought against the most brilliant military strategists in mm -hmm. European history and Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned fight. And so that sense of struggle mm -hmm. was really a big part, sounds like, of the psyche of the country. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the psyche of its people. And that's in our blood. That's embedded in us in, mm -hmm. in, in so many ways. So there's a lot of value in it. And then there's a lot of trauma in it. Yeah. You know, that continue to unearth and unpack in me today. <laughs> so in terms of your earliest memories, how does that backdrop that you just set for us, you know, the pride, the struggle of Haiti, how did that form you in some of the earliest times you can remember? Well, yeah, I think resilience and the will to conquer something hmm. and being the underdog and fighting through things always felt like the makeup of my identity in a lot of ways. You know, when you live in a house that, first of all, it's kind of like overpopulated. It was me. I have two sisters. It was my mother. It was my father. It was my grandmother who was living with us. And it was any cousin who was like trying to get citizenship living with us in probably like a three-bedroom apartment that was like 400 square feet, right? So we always lived on top of each other in a way. And when you live in a house with someone who has gone through that level of abject poverty, the looming fear of losing everything kind of exist as a cloud over the home. And so you're always hearing these narratives and these stories about, I had nothing when I was growing up. I had to walk barefoot to go to something. And like, you learn a particular kind of like beautiful value in that. And then you kind of hit with a kind of depression where you're always afraid that that will happen to you. And in a lot of ways, we grew up poor and broke. You know, we had the basic necessities like roof, maybe some bread and some Haitian food that might have been a couple of weeks old. And you had some clothes from like Conway, not from Macy's. So it's like I just always grew up with this understanding that I was going to have a close relationship with suffering mm. and that the only way to overcome it was going to be through my willpower. But then you know, you realize that we are actually human and that we're finite and that actually our willpower will run out at some point. And then I think, you know, this is where the element of faith comes in. And we grew up Catholic, but I didn't see anything reflected of Christ in my home. And I always hated church and church was boring. And so I can't say that there was a relationship with a religious practice growing up, but there was overwhelming evidence that there was something far beyond this world mm -hmm. that was at play. It's just evident. It's just evident. No one goes through a poverty like that and gets out on their own volition. Just no one. Hmm. But as a kid, I really did wrestle with like these four coherent things that I wanted to understand about reality. I was like, yo, what is my origin? Like, where am I from? <laughs> How did I get here? What is my meaning? Why am I here? My morality, how do I act while I'm here? And then like, what is my destiny? Like what happens when all of this is done? I always thought like that. And so I always grew up with a sense that there's something else 
there is obviously something else. And when I look at the characteristics of a people that I come from, it's about standing in the face of an overwhelming mountain. And what does it take for me to climb that thing and get over to the next side? Mm. How do I get out of this wilderness? How do I pass through this plague? How do I get through? And so Mm. my life feels like it's been a metaphor of that. I've never not struggled for everything that (laughs) that has been remotely beautiful in my life. Mm. You talked about these two worlds colliding, your parents coming from this Haitian context of struggle and then you being brought up in New York City in a very different context. When do you remember seeing those two worlds collide or where were the points of tension maybe even in being like, oh, my parents are from something place different than the other kids' parents are? <laughs> I mean, that was evident from day one because my parents always talked about it. Okay. And you know, my father's like, you're not from here. We're not from here. You're not American. Like, we are Haitian people. Like, mm. straight up. I can't even really explain it <laughs> because you kind of only really know if you right. grew up first generation. Got it. I mean, like we would get in trouble if we ate out because that meant like a disrespect to the native land's cuisine. So mm. if I walked in with like a slice of pizza, it was forbidden. It was like, <laughs> oh, oh, you go get pizza? Oh, we have Haitian food right here. <laughs> like it was crazy. Like going to McDonald's was like going to a Michelin five-star restaurant. It was a gift. It was something that did not happen quite often. Like everything from like the music that we were allowed to listen to in the house, from the food that is being cooked. It was very evident that I was kind of in between these two worlds. It's like, I wasn't born on the native land of Haiti, but my full identity and culture is inundated Mm. with it. And I'm not, an American. I'm not African-American, but I'm black. I have a different element of blackness. So it was just a different narrative. It sounds like at some point what started as what you could say, just a maybe distant religious context or setting Mm -hmm. became a personal faith. How and when did that happen? I just knew there was something. But again, I hated church. I thought it was boring. Also, I grew up in a very verbally abusive home, sometimes physically abusive home. I didn't didn't see anything reflected Mm. in Christ. So I was just like, maybe that's not it. But the moments where I really started to question faith or really question what was out there was sort of when I came up in prominence as a poet. Okay. I inherently, again, because I had this sense of like, the supernatural and like God or whatever. These things were kind of like in my DNA already. Got it. Got it. There was a poem and I'm going to get to where the creative comes in. We'll talk about that a little later, but you had this line in beauty part three, where you said, I learned how to hate myself. And you wrote, God doesn't love me Mm -hmm. in my notebooks. Mm -hmm. Now that was a line in a poem. Was that true? Yeah. Wow. What was some of the sources of that learning how to hate yourself? So I think it's mixed with a couple of things and it kind of makes us go down a whole rabbit hole of mental health. But yeah, growing up in a verbally abusive home where you're not verbally affirmed at all about anything that you do good, I think changes you on a chemical level. And listen, it's because my father grew up with that same type of abuse, you know, so in a lot of ways he did the best he could, but he did not have the tools, I think, to love me in the way that I thought would would allow me to grow. And our relationship has changed, you know, since. And, you know, we speak now and 
some of those things have grown, but growing up, no, he's very harsh. Mm. I mean, so harsh that some of the things I don't even want to share. Mm. But, you know, when you grow up in an environment like that, and then you grow up in New York, which is just a harsh city, that New York is constantly going to remind you that you ain't nothing. Uh, it's constantly going to tell you that you're trash. And then growing up in like a culture of a harmed masculinity mm. that brings about pain upon other people as a form of trying to feel better about yourself growing mm -hmm. up in the hood the threat of imminent danger always looming like yo am i gonna get jumped today so i was constantly under that then i go into the school systems and the school systems tell me that i'm dumb and that i'm stupid and it wasn't that i was dumb or stupid i just don't learn that way i don't work well in a traditional classroom setting so in every area of life from school from home from culture I'm being told that I don't exist, that, that I'm stupid, that I'm ugly. You know, I was very overweight growing up, that I was fat. And so, yeah, I kind of grew up experiencing depression from probably as early as kindergarten. Mm, wow. And so I constantly questioned if there was ever a space for me mm. that I can be loved. Was there any a space for me that I can feel safe? Was there ever a space for me where I can feel known and Little did I know I would find that space in the arts because those were the only moments where I didn't feel those things. Okay. So one of the questions I always love asking artists, right? This is like brown sugar question. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first begin to love art? Kindergarten. Whoa. Kindergarten. Tell me about that. Do you want to talk about where you're from? This is the origin of me becoming an artist. In kindergarten, Holy Name Catholic School on the Upper West Side on 96th Street in Amsterdam Ave. I had a teacher named Miss Parker, and I really want to find her. Miss Parker, if you're listening, I got to find you. Miss Parker, during nap time, would always play the Boys to Men album, mm. and I could never fall asleep. My mind would rapture up into this music, and I would listen to it. End of the Road right. was the first song I ever memorized mm. in kindergarten. I couldn't understand fully what the song meant, but I knew inherently that it was a level of maximum vulnerability and Black expression, mm. and it caught me. The riffs, the song, I was like, I think I feel those things, mm. and I don't know how to express it, but they do. And so from there, that's when I started to sing. So I taught myself how to sing by listening to End of the Road and memorizing that song. Wow. So fast forward through the second to fifth grade, I was severely bullied. And it got really bad to the point in the fifth grade, I was having suicidal ideation mm. like that early. And I had wrote a note saying that I wanted to kill myself to someone in class. And the teacher found it. And then the teacher called in the principal and they called the police and they called the fire department and they called my father and they had to come and then I had to start seeing like a therapist. So even that early in my life. Mm. And then, so in the sixth grade, I met this dude named Jason. And he was the coolest kid in school. And I remember watching him make a joke in a class and everyone laughed. And it felt like a little superpower. And then, so I started studying Martin, studying Will Smith and studying Jamie Foxx, looking at their comedic timing, looking at their talent. And I was like, I will hone these skills 
for my own sense of like peace Mm -hmm. in a way. And so that's how I started. Wow. So even, you know, tying it back to the story of Haiti in that sense of struggle, like even your discovery and the clinging to art was a form of survival. Oh, yeah. It really blossomed when I became a poet. When did that happen? Well, so, you know, I was friends with a lot of gangsters. I was. <laughs> how every poetry story begins. Exactly. So all these gangsters would have me sing hooks on their rap songs. <laughs> this is how it started, right? And I was like, I feel like I have more to express. So I was a part of a bunch of nonprofit organizations while I was in high school. I was a part of this nonprofit called Urban Dove, where they actually trained young high school students to become facilitators while using sports as a vehicle for scholastic improvement and for teamwork building and for like life skills. And they used to do this thing that they would call cultural outings which were like trips. And one day they were like, yo, we're going to go to this poetry spot. So I brought a whole bunch of those gangsters and my homies, like all these rappers. This is going to be whack, but they're going to give us free pizza before the joint. So (laughs) let's go. So I'm going for the free pizza. Right. So we get some pizza and then we go to this open mic. I think I was a sophomore or junior in high school. And I'm seeing some of these same people who they would consider like gangsters or like unintelligent get up on stage and speak the most profound words I've ever seen in my life. Mm. And it made me feel this feeling of like, is this church? This feels like church because like they're so powerful with their language and their words. I'm like, but this also feels like rap. So I'm also getting the tinge of this youth movement. It also feels like R&B because everyone is overwhelmingly expressing the deepest depths of their hearts. And at that open mic, I experienced what I think we would call a revelation. And I said, oh, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. I knew instantly. And I went home that night and I wrote poetry every single day for the next five years. Wow. Like, I'm not even kidding. Every day for the next five years. It gave me that same feeling that I felt when I heard End of the Road the first time. Mm -hmm. It was this sense of like, I think this is how I've been wanting to express and communicate to the world. And I found it. Mm. It was like I'd been searching for something and then I found it. Wow. But the thing with poetry is it gave me everything. It gave me the lyrical dexterity that I loved in like MCs and rappers. It gave me the emotional vulnerability and the truth and the honesty and the rawness of like 90s R&B. It gave me the theatricalism that I loved when I watched these comedians get up on stage. It just gave me everything. Wow. It was like I got to get everything that moved me in this one place. Hmm. Okay. So you start writing these poems. Mm -hmm. When do you decide to start sharing them? So we went to another open mic and I had poems. I don't know what I said (laughs) up on that stage. It was crazy. But man, I just got up on stage and everyone showed love. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I did was like the biggest thing that I did. One of my mentors was like, hey, so the Knicks basketball team and Urban World NYC have a partnership. They do this thing called the Knicks Poetry Slam, where everyone from the tri-state area, Philly, New Jersey, New York, come to New York at Madison Square Garden. They share their poems, and then they choose the top 50. Those top 50 go into the Knicks offices and perform for a bunch of the players, a bunch of like mm. people in the organization, and then they choose the top 20 to perform at the finals. The finals will be at Madison Square Garden in one of the theaters that they have in there. And the top five winners will win 
money. They will win a free laptop and a free printer so that they could utilize it to go to college. So I went, I didn't think nothing of it. I said, you know, let me just do it. You know, they also treated it like a big college fair. So there were a bunch of colleges there. It was great. People were dancing. It was, it was, it was so lit. I was just like, and it was free pizza. <laughs> there it and, is. And it was free pizza. Just give me the free pizza yeah. and I'll show up. And then I end up getting a call like, hey, you made it to the second round. You made it to the top 50 of this poetry event come back down to Madison Square Garden. So I get in this boardroom and I'm just spitting for a couple of these Knicks players and a bunch of people in the organization. And then I get a call that I made it to the finals. So I'm like, oh, top 20. Mind you, my parents don't know. So I go to the finals and (laughs) I perform. And also the whole hood was there. Like everyone in Harlem was there. Like all my homies. And, you know, they're listing off the winners of the slam. And so they said second place and I was just happy to be there, man. And they got the first place and they said my name and I nearly passed out. So I won the whole slam. I placed first out of everyone in the tri-state in my first poetry slam ever. And then that was really the shift where I was like, this is now my career. So at this point, I'm guessing you had to tell your parents. (laughs) So yeah, I came home with the money and a laptop and I was like, hey, I just won this thing. And my father's like, oh, whatever. And my mom was like, oh, I guess that's nice. My parents didn't get the magnitude and significance of what I did until I became a lead on Broadway. Let me just okay. let me okay. just say that. Got it. So it took over a decade. Mm. So, but then at the same time, you mentioned this is when you started asking some deeper questions of faith. Why do you think questions of faith began to surface for you? I'll tell you why. So I'll fast forward from 2007 to 2009. 2009. I'm at the finals for the New York Youth Poetry Slam. It was at the Apollo. So I'm performing at one of the most prominent venues, not only in the world, but in Harlem, where I'm from. Mm. And so it's a lot of support, a lot of love. And I had just visited Haiti a couple of months ago with my mom. And I wrote this poem about Haiti, talking about its beauty and its tragic poverty. And while I was performing this piece, I did this poem. I finished the poem. I looked up to the crowd. Everyone was crying. I apparently had wrote a piece that was so moving, it moved everyone to tears. And I remember saying to myself when I looked out, wow, I know I don't have the power to make over a thousand people just weep because of some words that I wrote. Man, I must have a gift. And I remember walking off stage and I remember saying to myself, oh, wait a second. If I have a gift, that means like someone gave me that gift. That suggests like a gift giver, right? And I remember I went back to my seat and I remember I was like, who's the gift giver? And then that was when I went searching. Hmm. I was like, all right, I grew up in Catholic school talking about Jesus. Okay. I I resonate with Jesus, that story. I mean, in the poetry community, it's inundated with a lot of different worldviews. You know, spoken word is kind of like the birth child of like early African hip hop. Right. And just real quick, like if you had to put a ranking of all the different worldviews and belief systems in that community, where would Christianity typically rank? Oh, to the people? Yes. Oh, dead last. (laughs) (laughs) Dead last. But it wasn't dead last for me. If anything, I was just like, I just want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. Something about Jesus was resonant, but I was like, I don't know what's the truth. And I remember feeling and saying to myself, like, yo, God, you kind of got to have to show me here. And he started showing (laughs) He started showing me. He started pulling up in a mighty way. And 
it changed everything. It changed everything. When we come back, Carvins will share about the heartbreaking ordeal of trying to locate his mother, who was in Haiti during the 2010 earthquake, and how that moment led to a spiritual awakening. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Carvins Lassant, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Justin Gibney. This is where you're from. And so I began to discover like this false dichotomy in politics where if you cared about social justice or you felt you were on the Democratic side, you'd had to go left and then drop your convictions. Or if you were on the Republican side of it and you cared about these moral issues, then you have to go right and drop your compassion. And I said, nah, this is a false dilemma. Like, why, because I'm in one party or the other, do I have to deny my witness? And I just thought Christians weren't getting having the opportunity to bring their whole witness into the conversation. Now let's get back into our conversation with Carvins Lassant on where you're from. When you say he started showing up in a mighty way, mm-hmm. give me an example. So the first thing is around that same time I'm getting into poetry, me and my family didn't have a place to live. You know, my parents had hit a really terrible, like, debt, and they were trying to buy a home. And so we were living in, like, a one-bedroom apartment. Like, how many people? It was me, my mother, my father, my younger sister, my grandmother, my grandmother's nurse. It was about seven people in, like, a one-bedroom apartment. So I slept on a couch. My father slept on a couch. My mother and sister slept on a bed in my grandmother's room who slept on like a hospital bed because she was sick and her home health aide who was a nurse slept in the other room because legally she had to have her own room. Mm. And so I lived like that for years. And so I couch hopped. We were pretty much homeless. You know, we had a roof. Just because you have a roof doesn't mean Mm. you have a home. Right. So some people refer to as housing instability. Mm -hmm. Going back to that earlier sense that you mentioned of poverty and trauma associated with that when it could all fall apart you know, with an eviction notice or just in one moment, then that doesn't feel like home in a sense of like yeah. stable, comfortable, yeah. restful. Oh, it was none of those things. Yeah. Right. I like that housing instability. Homeless housing instability is what it was for right. me. Because, you know, I was riding the trains late nights. Cause I knew I had no place to really sleep in the house because I was like on a broken couch, wow. crashing with friends. And so that was a really big thing. Because it was building my character. And that was something that I knew because I was discouraged in that time, but I still felt faithful in that time. So I remember being like, I don't know how I'm surviving this. There's something else at work. It felt like a supernatural being that, you know, us believers would say it was keeping me. 
The next evident thing is my mother was in Haiti during the earthquake. Wow. The 2010 earthquake yeah. that was so devastating. Devastated the country. And we did not hear from my mother for a week. Mm. You know, we were certain she was dead. Wow. So we were like kind of planning a funeral, just waiting to hear back. Mm. And I'll never forget this moment. I was in duress, couldn't sleep, was up late at night. It was like 4 a.m. We can't get in contact with any family, with anyone. And my father gets a call. And I hear my father wail. Mm. My father, the toughest man that I've ever met, just weeping. And he comes into my room and he's like, your mother, your mother. And I'm certain. I'm like, this means she's dead. And about an hour before that, I had prayed. And it was been one of the maybe first times I'd ever prayed. And I remember saying, God, if you spare my mother's life, I will spend the rest of my life trying to live the way you want me to. Mm. Father comes in. He gives me the phone. And I pick up. And I hear my mom's voice. And a force rushed into the room. It was cold. It was like a breeze. And I literally dropped to my knees, like in a form of worship. So that was something I'm like, okay, maybe there's something happening here. And then kind of the third thing was my relationship with women. I was dating a lot and going through constant heartbreak and not really understanding what my self-worth was. And it's funny you mentioned the beauty part three poem. I performed and debuted that poem a couple of days before I got saved. Mm. And because that poem was an investigation about me going through these trauma points in my life about what I believed about myself. You know, that's why in that poem, I talked about God doesn't love me. And I talked about me being super promiscuous in college and not even in a form of like, because I wanted to like live in sin, but it was because I was trying to get what I think God provides in marriage, but just doing it outside of his covenant and his design. And so- I'm doing all these things, and obviously I'm meeting Christians along the way who are like, maybe you should go to church, and maybe you should do this, and maybe you should do that. And so I say, you know what, let me go to church. At the time, this is when Hillsong opened up. You know, there's controversy there, but but that's what did it for me. So I went to Hillsong once, and I hated it. Everybody was so nice, and ugh. I was like, <laughs> get out of here. And I remember just watching preaching that I can identify with. And I was just like, you know what, just just whatever, man. Let me not do this. Three people. It was an ex-girlfriend. It was my best friend at the time. And then it was a friend that I was going to acting school with at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And she said, you should come back. And I was just like, nah, I'm good. She's like, you should come back. Went back a second time. Still hated it. Everyone was nice. I was frustrated. But they were saying things I can resonate with, things that I was experiencing in poetry. Like, honestly, when I went, I was just like, oh, church is just like a poetry slam without like the poetry. It's like <laughs> people are communing. It's an assembly of like people who are here to support. It reminded me of the poetry community. So I was just like, OK, cool. And then the third time was a couple of days after I performed that Beauty Part 3 poem. And I felt a presence and a voice say, go to church. And I fought it. I fought it. I fought it. I said, I'm going to walk around the city until there is no church. So I walked around New York. I literally walked from like 14th Street all the way up to like 110th, walked right back down to like 23rd. Mm. And it was like 10.50 p.m. It was like 10.50 p.m. And I was like, mm, ain't no church, God, or whatever thing I'm hearing right now. So sorry. I ended up walking to 23rd Street. And then I felt God say, look up. And I looked up and it said Gramercy Theater. 
Hillsong services. <laughs> and I was like, no way I did all this walking and still ended up at church. Mm-hmm. And then I felt God say, walk in. And I walked in. And as soon as I walked in, that same presence that I felt that pushed me to my knees, when I found out my mother was alive, was the same presence that made me feel like I had to lift my arms. Mm. And so I walked literally right at the time of the altar call and gave my life to the Lord that day. That's amazing. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard someone just walk into church. Don't no song, no sermon. Just it's time right now. I walked in right at the altar call. Wow. As soon as I stepped foot, I just started weeping. I'm like, yo, why am I crying? I'm like, what is? Mm. No, as soon as I walked in, I broke. Mm. Something broken. Mm. And then gave my life to the Lord that day. Man. So how did that impact your trajectory at that point? For me, it didn't feel like it would be a challenge. I was just like, oh, I just, I'm just a Christian now. It is what it is. And in a lot of ways, I still feel that, right? But there was one part of me that I was like, oh, man, I feel free of something. All right, there is a God. His name is Jesus. About to get to know him. About to start reading up. About to be in church community. Figure this out. But I was still always that same guy. Like, I'm the same dude at church that I am at the poetry venue. I'm the same dude at a concert that I am in Hamilton. I'm the same dude in Hamilton that I am when I'm leading a Bible study. You know, I don't try to separate those. I just, I'm trying to be who God designed me to be. So I just thought, oh, like, if you love the Lord, like, you act like it, right? You don't like misuse the scripture and like abuse people. I didn't know I was walking into the world because of the change that I had. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's no way you change like this and you harm people. So I didn't realize that I was walking into a sort of the depth of like historical pain that the church caused against a lot of people. And so I didn't know that I was going to have to turn into like ninja Christian and like fight (laughs) to like defend the faith Mm -hmm. like a Bruce Lee like believer I didn't know I was walking into that Mm -hmm. all I knew is that I was changed and couldn't nobody tell me God was real Mm -hmm. because that's where it starts right Um, that's where the salvation starts and then the sanctification comes in changing things about your lifestyle in order to live healthier Mm -hmm. being more spiritually aware you know loving people figuring out the wonders of scripture Mm -hmm. trying to learn in that way Figuring out what does it mean to be in community. Uh, You grew up hating church. What does that mean now? The poetry slams used to be your church. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile the new ideologies that you have with people who you're with? How do you lovingly disagree with people? How do you defend the faith? How do you learn when to shut up and actually just listen to people's hearts, even if you don't agree with what they're talking about? How do you mourn with those who mourn? How do you weep with those who weep? How do you have friends who go in the faith with you and then leave the faith? Do you still remain? Like there's all these things that, you know, you learn over a lifetime of following the Lord. Hmm. Things I'm still learning today. But I think one thing that has remained consistent is that God has sort of made me a bridge between people who hate the church Hmm. and who hate him to him. And so I feel like that's a unique calling. Yeah. And what do you think... It is about you that prepares you or equips you to be able to hang in there for those conversations, because those are some spaces that a lot of believers would just rather not be in. Oh, I think anyone who knows me knows that I go hard in the pain. I just go hard. (laughs) And 
it's so funny because I've, I've studied so much apologetics and scripture and try to have these intellectual conversations and all of that. But at the end of the day, it does dwindle down to one thing. Something happened to me, man. Mm-hmm. God changed me. I was never the same. The encounter I had, it, I was just never the same. And I desire for people to have that same experience. Man, that's powerful. And that did lead you to a position of leadership, right? You started yeah. ministry at St. John's? Very early. Yeah. I mean, I was probably saved for like 15 minutes and I got <laughs> thrusted into it, but I had all these skills, right? I grew up as a teaching artist. I grew up as a facilitator, being a, a coach, a basketball coach and all this. So I had these transferable skills that was like, oh, I could teach, I could lead. And so I go to St. John's University and I kind of got thrusted in into this gospel choir. And I was like, we're not out here just singing songs. This is about some real stuff. And the second year I became one of the chaplains of the gospel choir. So we led and facilitated Bible studies and, you know, broke open scripture. And and, and that was great. So I was like leading worship, singing gospel songs and like just learning, mm-hmm. learning. It's so funny because even when I started reading the Bible, they felt like poetry to me. Yeah. I was going to ask you that, too, because there is a lot of poetry in the Bible, Psalms, a lot of the prophets. But it's funny because that's literal poetry. I didn't even start with that stuff. I started with the Gospels. Mm. And those red letters felt like I was like listening to like a dude on stage spit the most fire bars. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that goes hard. You know, I remember reading the Gospels and stuff like on the train and like I would read something and be like, woo! I was fired and just throw the Bible in the air. People would look and be like, yo, what is you? What is you on? Because again, I'm that same dude. Do you remember a particular passage that stood out to you that really spoke to you? I just remember what I was feeling when I was reading about Jesus. I was like, mm-hmm. yo, this dude is fire. <laughs> there was something about his power and dominion mm-hmm. that really spoke to me. Yeah. There was something about his gentleness and kindness that really spoke to me. There was something about his wisdom that really Mm. spoke to me. And I'm not even trying to be corny. I really felt these things. You know, when I read the part of scripture, and I'm paraphrasing here, when they're in the garden and the soldiers and Judas come for him, you know, he's like, whom do you seek? And they're like, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it said, and the soldiers fell down. That his name was so heavy and so powerful that like a breeze blew and they fell back. I was like, whoo, just by his name. So then when I hear songs like, your great name, I'm like, yeah, his name, like, like quite literally his name Mm. made them fall back. You know, I remember that, you know, when he told the winds and the waves to be still and they were just still, I was like, still speaks to nature and and they obey. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even saying that he was worthy of worship and that if we don't do it, the rocks will cry out. Mm-hmm. You know, just that it just spoke to me. Mm-hmm. But then I'm watching how he treats people with overwhelming compassion. You know, when when Lazarus dies and they're like, yo, Martha and Mary, like, where were you? Where were you? It was you who was supposed to save my brother. Where were you? And he had the power to do it all the time, but he weeps with them first. Mm-hmm. I was just reading these things and I'm like, what? There was none like you. Mm. There was just none like you. I really felt that. No, that's beautiful. To be on the cross, to be on the cross. And this is another thing about being from a, a harsh household, a harsh city where 
Grace and compassion does not exist for your enemies. It, it just doesn't. To be spit on, to be beaten brutally, to be ridiculed, and to look down and be like, yo, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I was like, he's different. Mm. I'm curious, you know, in school, you end up going to NYU for grad school Mm -hmm. after that. Mm -hmm. And what's your first job out of grad school? (laughs) Well, I booked three jobs out of grad school. The one that I ended up doing was Hamilton. That's saying something. And you and listen, what I also say is that that doesn't mean anything in the acting industry. It's the only industry where you, in a matter of a moment, can be the top one percent of earnings and go straight into poverty, like in a matter of a minute, you know, so like, okay, that's true. But I would disagree that that doesn't mean anything right out of college. You just tell me. I'm just asking the question. You know, how common is it that someone would book the biggest show in the world on Broadway immediately out of college? Well, I think, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that the out of college or the out of grad school thing is a little deceiving. Okay. Because I had an extensive career as a full-time artist before the acting. Yeah, I didn't ask you that, though. <laughs> but I think it's important. What people don't know is the optics look straight out of college. Right. But what really happened was Hamilton was a 10-year journey. I had been offered an audition for Hamilton four years before I got it. Mm-hmm. I had been auditioning for Broadway shows wow. before that. Yeah. And so the training was actually a part of the story itself in the totality of it coming into fruition. But yes, out of a training program, it is rare. Right. So tell me about what that meant for you. It was the buzz. It was the cultural moment. It meant a lot, man. I mean, it meant a lot. What we didn't get a chance to speak to is about my transition from poetry to even acting. And really that came from two major things. The first thing was I was a part of this program at Urban Word NYC where they took young poets and auditioned them. And when you auditioned, you end up working with a dramaturg, a director, and a choreographer to change your poetry into a solo show. So I came into acting, performing my own work and writing my own solo shows. So that was one of the main components of me transitioning into acting. And then the other was actually, I fell in love with the stage because of Lin-Manuel Miranda's first musical, In the Heights. You know, I saw In the Heights my senior year of high school. And I remember saying, like, I always thought Broadway was corny, but I see myself in this work. This is powerful, you know, that we're using this aesthetic of the forms of storytelling that I love, hip hop, R&B in this form. And so joining Hamilton was kind of like a 10-year thing where God was faithful Mm. and saw something through. So it meant a lot to me personally. It was because of the storytelling. It wasn't necessarily because of the story. I'm like, okay, I'm George Washington. That wasn't the thing that moved me the most. What moved me the most is when I was a training actor as a young black man, my teachers used to tell me that I should stop doing poetry and stop rapping because it was going to influence my regionalism and I'll never be able to work in the American theater. Mm -hmm. And how a lot of these pedagogical approaches to the theater are inundated with a lot of these structural, really racist Eurocentric ideologies. Mm -hmm. And now I get to do a predominantly black and brown art form on the highest stage that was once deemed noise and loud, but it can be honored. And that was important to me. So that's what really moved me about being in Hamilton, that I got to tell stories the way that I felt like God designed me to tell stories was through this medium. And I think God's a poet. And I think God Mm -hmm. has lyrical dexterity. 
So that that's what really excited me. And yes, it was a cultural moment. It was great. Like I had great experience. It's a really tough job. I was a part of the company for five years. Obviously, there was the pandemic. So performed maybe about three and a half, four out of those five years. And it's a really tough job. But those first two years, it was a dream, man. Mm. It was a dream. I got to play multiple characters. I got to do it around the country. I got to do it as a lead. I got to meet incredible people. It was great. It was really a blessing. It was an honor. And as an actor, it just felt great to work, to be employed, <laughs> because that, <laughs> you know, that's rare. You know, uh, you're in L.A. now, and I think that's part of the story, right? Like, how'd yeah. you end up there? Well, yeah. So, you know, I started Hamilton in 2017. I was on Broadway as a standby, where I played Burr, George Washington, and Lafayette Jefferson for eight months. Then I was offered the role of George Washington on the tour. So I left New York and did the tour for six months. And then I came back to New York in the fall of 2018. And I performed as George Washington on Broadway from 2018 to 2019 for nine months as George Washington. I ended up leaving that contract maybe about a month early because I was reckoning a lot with my mental health. I've been suffering a lot from depression, burnout, overwhelming exhaustion. You know, the job is really hard. What they don't tell you is you have to really choose a job based off your value system. And there was a lot of stuff in my value system that I couldn't do. You know, I couldn't have dinner with my wife. I couldn't hang out with friends. I couldn't be in community. I couldn't go to church because I had a matinee performance on Sunday. You know, most of my days were spent rehabbing mm. uh, just so I could do the show that evening. So it just becomes a, a hamster wheel of burnout, really. And I burnt out and it really compromised my mental health in a way. So I asked to leave and they granted me that. They were always really good at making sure that I took care of myself. And I ended up leaving the show in June 2019. <laughs> as soon as I left, they were like, hey, do you want to do L.A.? And I was like, didn't I just tell you I was tired? <laughs> but it did offer an opportunity uh, for me to address certain things. You know, I think a part of what was contributing to my depression was the pace of New York City. I think it was the culture of the city. And so I knew I wanted to transition my career into more television and film. And so I knew that LA would be a place that I can come into a new market and do that. And so, you know, through a series of negotiations and all that stuff, I ended up doing it. And then that's what brought us out to LA. And so me mm. and, and my wife, Leslie, we, we moved out here, mm. found out we were pregnant when we got out here. Wow. And as soon as we were about to start Hamilton, everything shut down because of COVID. The worldwide pandemic. But then even when we came back, we had, you know, multiple COVID surges that we had to get shut down in the middle of our run. You know, we were supposed to go until July. We ended up only going until March. Mm. And so back to being an unemployed, <laughs> struggling, grinding artist. But yeah, you know, we're here now and <sighs> trying to see what the Lord has. Got it. And how do you make sense of that for yourself? Like to be in a place where you did hit that milestone and now there's some question about what's next or struggle. Yeah. You know, the thing that is both thrilling about choosing a life as an artist is the thing that's also very frustrating and unhealthy about it, which is this overwhelming uncertainty. And, you know, a lot of people would say it's an opportunity for faith, uh, but it's also an opportunity for stress. <laughs> and so it's really difficult when you're a part of something that isn't linear. Mm. Like just because I was in Hamilton doesn't mean that someone will have a thriving career after it. 
it's really contingent upon, I think, what God has for an individual. Mm -hmm. But also, that's not the type of career that is made. You could literally be on a TV show and then working at Trader Joe's the next day. Yeah. You know, and so it does take a lot of faith in it. And, you know, you question what is healthy for me? Because listen, being happy and being joyful, that's one thing, but being healthy is another. Yeah. And so a lot of people, you know, would say, like, you know, the joy and the happiness will come. And, and, and that's true. But are you healthy? Mm-hmm. And so it's a constant negotiating of that. And I think that's, you know, a great place to kind of circle back from because when I think about the questions and the struggle as you describe your your dad's existence in abject poverty in Haiti first and then in New York City and all of those things. And now, you know, when you think about your own position as a husband and a father, mm-hmm. I'm hearing you really fight for a certain type of wholeness and wellness that goes beyond physical provision or, you know, success. And so what has that been like to be a dad and to be a husband and to do it in the shadow of the trauma that you've experienced, but also with the hope of a light? Oh, it's a great question. I think it's kind of funny. You know, when we found out we were pregnant, I was certain it was a girl. I was like, I'm going to be the most fire girl dad. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be present. And I'm a lover. It's going to be cool. And then we found out it was a boy. And I was like, ooh, wait a minute. I was not ready for that. Because with boy came so much. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to reconcile a lot of stuff with my own father. I, I just spiraled. And so I was calling a bunch of fathers during the pandemic. I was like, man, just talk to me about like fatherhood or whatever. I spoke to, obviously, uh, you know, you and a bunch of other folks from from Bridge Church. Uh, But I had a really good conversation with Preston Perry. And he said two things that stood out to me. The first thing is he said, don't father from your area of lack, because then you'll always lack. Right. Uh He said, if someone had a father who didn't provide, don't go overwhelmingly just to provide and give provision. And then you're not emotionally there. Uh Right. <laughs> Try to make the best model of your fatherhood is literally just being like Jesus, mm. being compassionate, you know, being loving, you know, being a leader, leading by example. And I thought that was really powerful. Seems simple, but really powerful. It's so funny, you know, our, our strive is to be more like Christ, but it's really the answer. Huh. It's really the answer. So I'm just in a journey where I'm I'm trying to be like Christ in every area of life in regards to my marriage and my fatherhood. And there's some things I'm really good at and there's some things I'm terrible at. Those things that I'm terrible at, I'm trying to reconcile on how to do those things better. I appreciate Carvin's not only opening up about the struggles of being an artist, but also his struggles with his mental health. I'm glad he reached out to people in his community to get help. If you're struggling with mental health, I'd encourage you to reach out to a therapist, trusted family member, friend, or pastor for help. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gustman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Joy Beth and Rachel for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.